I'm Danielle Houston. I'm the host of this podcast, The Checkup. What you are about to listen to or watch is an overview of the fundamentals of the Washington Long-Term Care Trust Act. It is now being called Washington Cares, so that's what you'll hear referred to throughout this recording. I hope that you learn something here that empowers you and helps you to understand what your options are, whether you are an employer looking to educate your employees, perhaps you would like to offer them some alternative solutions, or you're an individual who wants to understand how this could impact your financial planning. Thanks for listening. I'm a health and welfare advisor here at Locked In Companies. We are having a conversation today specifically about Washington Cares. That's how I'm going to refer to it for the rest of our time together. It's a lot shorter and uh, the state has gone ahead and put that on their website. So that's officially the name of this marching forward. Steve Kane is joining me today as well. He is our long-term care expert. Um, I'm going to go ahead. I have some shares to, or some slides to share. So um, I will start that. Steve, do you want to just go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Sure. I, you know, I love when there's no long bio in front of it. And it's just, you can tell them a little bit about yourself. I am a self-described long-term care nerd right? Um, I also want to put a disclaimer out there. I'm not an attorney, um, but I did attend every single legislative session uh, online. I, I've attended committee meetings. Um, and, and really, most importantly, I chair the, the working group for the National Association of Health Underwriters for Long-Term Care. And what that means is uh, I'm actively involved in our industry as it relates to private long-term care insurance. And that means a couple times a year, I, I go to D.C., and I usually meet with federal legislators, uh, but I also regularly meet with local and state legislators. And I live down here in California, but I uh, spent quite a bit of time in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and over the last five, six months, really, has spent a tremendous amount of time following uh, this and working with uh, Danielle and her team, as well as a lot of employers out there uh, with respect to the Washington Cares Fund. So I'm just happy to be here this afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So I have more than 20 years of experience in employee benefits. And Steve and I met specifically through the National Association of Health Underwriters. We are both involved there on the legislative side. I'm the legislative chair for the Washington State chapter. So I've been involved, especially in this last year, um, in those sessions that Steve mentions. And last week, Steve and I actually shared a very similar panel and conversation with some of our peers across the country, because one thing is for sure, everyone is watching what Washington State yeah. is doing. And, you know, not just for the sake of watching, but there are at least eight other states who are talking about some similar legislation, which means as an employer, especially if you're multi-state, we're talking about a lot of potential, you know, complexities coming and not just in the form of what you're probably already experiencing with paid family leave, but then also long-term care and COBRA and so many of the other things that employers are really um, struggling through. So I have, um, I'm gonna have a poll here and Actually, I might need to relaunch here. Um, 
I would really like to hear from folks if you would rather us spend more time talking about the fundamentals of Washington Cares, we will do that with our time. On the flip side, if you would rather, you know, focus on Q&A, we can do that as well. I know that we have a number of, you know, employers of different sizes that are joining us. And I know that there are actually some other folks from across the country who are more in the space of long-term care who have joined us again today. So we just want to be able to use this time um, as effectively and in the way that you would most like. So um, it looks like we have, um, well, maybe getting uh, a little heavier on focusing on some fundamentals of Washington Cares. So we can, we can do that. I'll go ahead and um, end the poll and close this out. I'm multitasking here. So, all right, our first overview here, I'm gonna ask that, um, Steve is going to just walk us through kind of the history of the bill. Yeah. And I, and I want to start out, Daniel, with a, a kind of a, another disclaimer beyond me not being an attorney, that as an insurance consultant, I'm, I'm not a purist. And you and I have talked enough to, I think we share, or we're aligned in our thoughts here, that I'm not, I'm not sure that private long-term care insurance is the only way to go to solve this big problem. So, I mean, bottom line is if we look macro, this country has a big problem around long-term care. We've got all these aging baby boomers. Our, our Medicaid expenditures are going up, 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 meaning people aren't planning for long-term care. And so twice a year, I'm going to DC and I'm meeting with federal legislators. And frankly, I'm not getting anything done, right? You know, we're talking a good game and, and we're saying, here's what we need federally. Um, but really they've got their hands full. And, and I don't see any type of federal legislation anytime soon that's gonna go anywhere. So the state of Washington just said, hey, we're gonna do it on our own. And, and I wish they would have done it differently and we'll go into why and how in a, in a bit, uh, but the state of Washington, I understand the intent, like I get it. Um, the intent is help people plan for long-term care, you know, help, help people finance long-term care because it's a big issue, um, you know, but it is a publicly financed program uh, that we'll get into. Um, when did this thing start? Uh, before 2019, there have been talks about the stuff for a long time. And then there have been other states that have, that have proposed this, but got shot down. Uh, but in a special, um, special session, both House and State passed it, and then Jay Inslee signed it in 2019. Um, and this was called the, I think the legal or technical plan is called the Washington State Long-Term Care Trust Act, but they've rebranded it for employers and employees. And it's called the Washington Cares Fund. And you'll see more of that um, you know, come in the next, you know, few months, but basically it is a law, it is happening and it's being implemented January 1, 2022. And what is it? It's a publicly funded basic long-term care program for Washington residents. It, as, as Danielle mentioned, it's the first of its kind. Um, this is the first time we've seen this in any state. And I do think that we're going to see other states mirror what Washington is trying to do. I'm very active down here where I live in California and Governor Newsom has set forth a long-term care task force that meets on Friday of this week for the, the second meeting. And by July of, of 2022, they've got to come up with a recommendation as to what should California do. And uh, again, seven other states beyond California are looking at this and are in various stages of development. So what does it do for Washington residents? 
it provides them a limited long-term care benefit. Um, and, and the intent is to save Medicaid funds. The intent is to make sure that we've got a, a kind of a hedge or a hedging strategy so that people plan somewhat for long-term care through this trust act um, and not rely solely on Medicaid to pay their long-term care expenses. Yes. And a couple of things that I wanted to bring to the conversation here too, because one of the questions I think that I have most frequently been asked, whether it's clients or um, at a barbecue I was at on Saturday is, you know, how did we miss this? Why haven't we heard of this? And I think there are two big things that are at play. It's my theory. The first one is that, you know, in 2019, uh, this, this all happened during the long session. So every other year, Washington state has a legislative session that's 105 days. On the alternate years, it's 60 days a lot happens in 105 days. And we see a lot happen, especially in the healthcare space when there's 105 days. In 2019, there was also just a lot of attention being focused on the federal stage. And I think often, you know, we are looking at what is happening federally and it's easy to miss the things that are happening in our own backyard, but it's really not even you know, all our fault though, either. I'm finding that the more time I'm spending um, in Olympia or watching what's happening in Olympia, even if you really want to be informed, there are fewer and fewer reporters. As we see, um, as we see um, panel or, you know, journalism and print media decline, we see a lot fewer reporters who are covering the legislative things that are happening in Olympia. So unless you're following a couple of key yeah. people on Twitter or you're digging through the Seattle times, you know, you might, it might be really, really hard to yeah. find. It's so, my understanding. It's my understanding, Danielle, that this did not go out to voters on a ballot. This no. was done in that long session. Sorry. So, I'm still not sure. I'm sorry. My Siri, well, Siri, Siri, popping Siri has questions too for us, but you know, the bottom line is, um, I, I do think come January, there's going to be, you know, some backlash where once employees start getting these taxes or wait a second, I didn't vote for this, but again, it was passed in that long session. This thing, the, the, the train has left the station. Um, I just don't see this being repealed, uh, or put back anytime soon. No. And I think that's also a really important note. Um, Paid family leave and the Long-Term Care Trust Act were passed without going to voters. And the biggest part of that is, you know, they're not calling it a tax, they're calling it a premium. So I believe that that's the caveat that allows them to go ahead and push this forward without a vote. And, you know, if you did get a ballot in Washington state, I think it was last year, or maybe it was coming out of the session in 2019, there was an advisory vote. There were a number of those on our ballot, which was basically the state kind of taking our temperature on how we felt about these things. And Washington voters were very clear how they felt on nearly all of those advisory votes. Um, And yet, you know, things have pushed forward. And we certainly would not see any changes to any of these elements, whether it's um, you know changing some of the funding or any other components until the new session starts, which is in January of 22. So you are absolutely right. The train has left 
the building. So um, our really our next option is um, to be prepared and to make sure that we understand. And you know, one of the things I encourage employers to do is just to think about, you know, are you on the camp of wanting to help employees find solutions? Is your approach going to be more along the lines of, you know, you want to educate and then, you know, maybe give employees some direction of where they can go as individuals? Or are you wanting, you know, to stay as hands off as possible? And I'm certainly hearing from some employers that, you know, paid family leave gave them a little taste of being caught in the middle of employees not really understanding that, you know, even though employers are collecting this premium and remitting it, that employers are not responsible for the administration or the timeliness of benefits. And there's a desire to separate themselves from that piece, you know, and then talk to clients who really want to do as much as they can to help employees find options. So, you know, we'd certainly love to hear from all of you um, how you feel about that. And we'll pop up another poll here at the end too that you can answer. So some of this we've already gone through. This um, premium tax starts January 1st. It is 0.58 for each $100 that's earned. A lot of this feels like paid family medical leave, but many things are very different. One thing is there's no cap on the wages that will be taxed. So unlike paid family medical leave that would cap with those, you know, Social Security, Medicare wages, there's no end to this one. And it includes really everything. So PTO, severance, Um, it does not include tips that would be paid out, um, but everything else would be considered taxable compensation. Self-employed, if you're not a W-2, you can opt in. Um, One of the things, and Steve, I don't know if you have seen some clarification on this or not. Will self-employed folks be able to opt in if, you know, on an annual basis or do they only have a one-time? It's a a one-time deal. And and so this opt-in, and we'll talk about the opt-out in a minute, but opting in for the self-employed is a one-time deal. If you want in the program, you got to do it now during this window uh, between October and December of, of 22. One thing I also want to mention regarding that uh, tax is that the more I make, the more I'm taxed, right? If my income goes up, 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 so is the tax. And about three quarters of the way into, um, you know, this, because again, it was passed in 19. Between now and then, there's been a lot of work in terms of what does this thing actually look like? The state, House, and Senate went back and forth on some amendments, and, you know, the insurance industry got involved to, to kind of uh, advocate for for the employee's behalf. Um, Same with some large employer associations. Um, And when when the state hired a third-party actuarial consulting firm, uh, the consulting firm said, hey, don't let anybody opt out. (laughs) I thought that was really interesting. So the state said, in order for this to be solvent over a 75-year period, don't let anybody opt out. Now, that wasn't plausible, wasn't going to happen. And, and so then began a negotiation as to, all right, when do you let people opt out? What's the time frame in which you let people opt out of this program and, and why and how? Um, but also a second item in that report said, it's likely that the tax will go up. And, and if you let people opt out, it should probably be at 0.66 right now, 
So that told us as consultants that, hey, this thing's going up, you know, we know it. Um, and, and so again, not only with my income, but it's likely that the state will come back and, and increase the dollar amount on an, uh, you know, when they can. And I think they can't do it until 24, but I'll, I'll confirm. I, I believe that's the case. I've read a lot of RCW in the yeah, last I bet. I bet. few weeks. So, um, and, and to that point too, not to get too deep in the weeds here, but one of the other things that study showed is that, you know, if the state could invest the funds from this trust in a more aggressive way, basically, you know, a stock market that, you know, they could be a little bit more conservative than that 0.66, but that would also have to go to the legislature. And they didn't even introduce that as an option in this session. So, you know, I, I think that it's definitely a concern that, you know, next year there would be conversation around, you know, they didn't invest very aggressively. Um, they've had a lot of opt out. So what does that premium look like going forward? And not to be overly dramatic, but, you know, we do think it's really important that if you're choosing to, you know, educate your employees and help them understand this, or even for yourself as a Washington resident, you have this one time to opt out. That's it. And you have to have coverage in place by this coming November 1st. And you have to apply to the state for that exemption by December 31st of 2022, or you are subject to this premium for the rest of the time that you work in Washington state, period. There's no other option. They have written this incredibly tight. So again, without legislation in the future to change that, that's what we have to work with right now. So, So, you know, the question becomes like people always ask, what do I get? You know, yeah. like I, I understand the, the 0.58 and I understand the uh, deductions, but what do I get from this? Uh, 36500 of long-term care benefit. Um, it's a hedge. It, it's right. certainly not. I know when my grandparents were receiving long-term care in Seattle, um, it covered, that would cover a fraction of the cost. And, and so it's something. It's not the overall solution, but I think the idea was to you know, take a, a, a bite out of the Medicaid expenditures that are going up, up, up. And, and that's a maximum lifetime benefit. That means one time total dollar amount of 36,500. Um, will that number go up over time? Maybe um, it, it's going to be tied to the CPI, but it's up to the, the commission to decide whether or not to increase that amount annually uh, based on the Washington state CPI. Um, but again, limited benefit. If I needed to be in a skilled nursing facility or assisted living, I'll tell you what, my, my grandfather was at, at a place that was like 7,000 a month. You know, so you, you look and you go, okay, how long is that gonna last me with this benefit, with this CARES fund benefit? Not, not long. Um, now, if I need home health care three days a week, it might last me longer. Um, but again, 36,500. Yeah. If you are really looking at this as a financial planning component, thinking post-retirement, this is definitely, you know, a a very small sliver. Anybody who's really looking at what they would need post-retirement would have to be looking, you know, quite a bit further. And and the state, Danielle, the state is is behind us on that. So um, about three, four weeks ago, right before Inslee signed it, there were two or three amendments that were finalized. And one of them said, 
you've got to work, uh, you know, the, the commission has got to work with private insurers to figure out some type of wraparound or, or coverage to augment this program. So even the state knows this is not the end all be all for long-term care. Right, right. So a couple of things, and we're gonna hit on this as we focus a little bit more too on what employers really need to know too. Um, any of your people who are working in Washington state are subject to this premium to this tax. So if you have folks who live in Oregon and they're driving into Washington to work, if they're in Idaho and coming into Spokane, as an example, they are still taxed. And unfortunately, because they are not residents, they would never qualify for the benefit. So when you're thinking about the makeup of your organization and who is there and who might need a little more education maybe than someone else, those folks would definitely be high on the list. Steve, I know yeah. you like talking about Russell Wilson uh, and what you know, his long-term care looks I'm a like. sports nut. And I tried to find a picture of Russell Wilson where he was frustrated, you know, and, and not I think I found it. it here. So you're looking at his um, 2022 salary, God bless him. And, and then what his tax is going to be again for a 36,500 benefit, but we're all not Russell Wilson. So take a look at, at regular, you know, employees, take a look at, at yourself and, and say where you're at on the income or total wage scale, and then what that tax would be. Um, obviously, as you go up the ladder and you begin to earn more, this becomes a meaningful tax that's only going to go up. So uh, again, I, I just think as a California resident, um, I look at Washington as you're one of seven states that don't have an income tax. Well, guess what? You have one now, and, and it's paying for a partial long-term care benefit. Yeah, we do. And I think one of the important, you know, weighing factors here is, you know, regardless of where you would fall on the annual payroll tax, you know, what kind of a solution could you alternatively purchase for the same or possibly even less, that would be a much more robust benefit. And it's, we it's find... Been... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you. no, you first. I was just going to say, it's, it's been nuts. Yeah. You know, for, for I've been a long-term care consultant for 20 years, and, and we've always been trying to uh, help people understand that there's this big risk out there called long-term care, and nobody wants to think about it, right? And, and I, don't, I don't blame them. Nobody wants to think about a chronic illness or being vulnerable or needing care at some point in their lives. It's not how we operate, right? But over the last several months, we've had more employees, individuals, employers come to us than ever before, because once they take a look at this plan and, and, the, and the potential tax that they might face, they're saying, what's my alternative? I don't want to do this. Um, right. And again, originally in the law, um, there was no opt out. Then we as an industry pushed back and, and employer groups did too. And then they pushed it to July. And as part of the last amendment that was passed before the bill was signed by, by Jay Inslee, um, we have till November 1st. That's the magic date in which somebody must secure private insurance. And that enables that person to raise their hand and opt out of the coverage or the tax, excuse me. Right. Okay. Will you quickly walk us through eligibility and vesting? Yeah. I mean, W-2 employees, again, we said that self-employed people can opt in, but they're not automatically in. Uh, W-2 employees that have been... Um, you know, that pay into the program for three out of the last six years or for a total of 10, including five consecutive years. And they work 500 hours a year or more are eligible. Um, and again, that makes them uh, eligible for that 36,005. That might go up, might not based on the, the Washington CPI. Um, this is not a retiree program. 
So this is not for people that are currently retired. And there are some, some other uh, you know, issues like uh, people that are disabled uh, prior to the age of 18 don't meet the, the requirements. So again, it's mainly for W-2 employees working full-time. And you know, another maybe a good place to interject that if you did have someone who was close to retiring, they would be someone else who would really want to consider a different option because they could pay into this for the last you know, few years of their career in Washington State and you know, maybe not qualify for a benefit on the yeah. other side. Yeah, I, I just thought this one was not, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the commuters, right? From Oregon and Idaho that come into Washington. The one I think about more are the people that are gonna leave. And, and I, I'm, I'm at this stage in my life where a lot of my peers, when I, we go to barbecues and we talk, everybody's talking about getting out of California. They wanna move to somewhere else. So let's say I pay into this program for years and years and years. And then I just say, you know what? I wanna move closer to the kids. I wanna move to Florida, Arizona, wherever. Um, you don't receive this benefit. It's not portable. Um, you must have be a resident of Washington in order to receive the benefit. Um, how do I qualify? Um, you need three activities of daily living out of 10. Um, and, and it's pretty similar to private long-term care insurance. They've added some, uh, but, but an important note is cognitive, um, you know, having some type of cognitive impairment is separately identified as one of the 10. So if I had dementia, as an example, I would need to be unable to perform two other activities of daily living in order to qualify for this benefit. So it's a little bit more stringent than, than what we normally see in private insurance. And it's $100 a day. What the benefit really works out to be, you know, if you qualify for these benefits, um, $100 a day is really the cap. Yeah. Okay. I, do I have to, I, we're just, we're just emphasizing here because you know, you might be surprised or maybe you wouldn't about how many times we get the question. Do I really have to pay it? Is there really right. other no right. alternative? And uh, yes, we, we <laughs> do. And unless we meet these qualifications and I'll tell you if the state of Washington would have had their way in this last legislative session, they were looking to close that window of you had to have a policy in place by July, I think 25th was their date. Yeah. Um, I was really encouraged to see the number of employer organizations who came together yeah. to testify against that. I thought it was a really great demonstration of the power that employers have when they will come and use their voice. And there were labor unions, um, the hospitality industry as well came out. And so we were able to strike compromise, not able to get everything that we really wanted, but able to push that July 25 date out to November 1st. And I just now, want like a point of clarification because it, it gets confusing where you see the time frame to apply for the extension is October 1. Yes. I want, there's two dates that are really important. November 1st is, is, I think, the most important date. And that means if I already own long-term care insurance, right? let's say I did the planning a few years ago and I bought long-term care insurance already, or if you're considering buying private insurance as an alternative to this program, then November 1st is when you must secure it by. You must have that policy in hand by November 1st. And then at that point, you can apply for this exemption that begins on October 1 that goes through all the way through next year. So again, two different dates, but I wanted to make sure we're clear. 
Yeah, I do think that's going to be a bit confusing, especially, you know, for folks who look at that timeline and misunderstand the way the state has structured this. Now, a few things, too, that I think are important to clarify here is that, you know, if you have your policy that meets the requirement of a long-term care benefit, you're going to have to submit that proof of coverage along with the, you know, whatever documentation or form the state develops. That process hasn't been defined yet. I imagine, um, you know, they're, they're trying to mirror as much paid family medical leave um, steps as, as possible. So once that's defined, hopefully, you know, in timeline with their October 1st date, people will be able to submit. This is the employee's responsibility, not the employer. So even if you offer a group long-term care coverage or say you offer a group whole life policy that includes a long-term care benefit that would satisfy the state's requirement, it is still up to the employee to take that documentation and submit it to the state. When the state approves that for the employee, they are going to receive a letter. And based on the way the rules are written so far, it's going to be up to that employee to maintain that letter yeah. and not only show it to their employer, who you, know, you would then make sure that payroll is set up not to take that tax out, but the employee is supposed to maintain that letter for the rest of their working career right. in order to show that to employers they would have down the road. Yeah, so like laminate that thing or something, right? <laughs> if I have to go to the next one, you have to show that letter to the next employer. Yeah, and, and I actually had this conversation with someone last week, which basically kind of went, did the state really think that through very well? And I, I don't know, but yes, you, you are going to want to protect that and maybe put that in a fireproof box. But um, the other thing too, is that these approvals are going to be granted by quarter. So if you are really quick and early to get your submission into the state, and I would encourage anyone to be quick, yeah get that in because if the state doesn't approve you prior to the end of this year, you would be subject to that tax for the entire first quarter. In the example here on our slide, if you waited until December, January, February, as an example, if it takes the state 60 days to process that and get you a letter back, you're still gonna be subject to that premium. They are not going to refund that either. So, you know, timeliness will certainly feel a lot better. And we know that there are going to be a lot of details that yeah. come out over the coming weeks with rulemaking. And, and every, every time I go on the, uh, there's a new CARES Fund website, there's something new. So I, I, I have, you know, on a probably weekly basis, I'm going on there and they just got funded um, you know, so you're going to see marketing and education coming your way, likely in July, August, like, they, you know, they're just starting to hire people, build out that website, and then you're going to see educational material coming your way from the state about this program. And I would encourage, um, we do have the website here and we can probably drop it in the chat for you too, if there's anyone who would, who would appreciate that. Um, you know, it's a pretty good website. They have an employer toolkit that's available out there now. I'm sure they will add a lot to it between now and of course the end of the year. And you do have the option of signing up for the employer newsletter that is specific 
to Washington Cares. And I think that's just new in the last few days. It is. You know, one other thing that I was thinking about that uh, we didn't put on there, a lot of people have been beginning to ask me, like, where does the CARES plan make sense? Like, why would somebody want that? Think about some of your employees who might have significant medical history, who might not qualify for, you know, private long-term care insurance, just can't get through the medical underwriting. Um, maybe that's the plan that's for them because they don't have a private al insurance alternative. That's a good call. It's looking at this like a guarantee issue. If you contribute right. into it, you do at least have some guaranteed benefit. All right, so let's transition into what employers need to know. And some of these, again, we've, we've gone through a little bit. Um, one thing that is positive about this too is that employers don't have to contribute. Um, if you would like to, you certainly can, but it is not required. The requirement of you as the employer is the administration, collecting the tax, remitting it, um, the state is establishing the remittance to, to work like it does with paid family medical leave. Um, so hopefully at least that process won't be too um, unfamiliar. But those employees, again, they're responsible for their opt-out. So if you're in human resources, that can be, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a, an encouragement there that you really, you cannot do this part for the employees, but you must collect until they bring you back that letter that says they're approved. And you'll have to collect, you know, from future hires if yeah. they have been approved as well. So it's interesting. We, we have a... Um a colleague of mine where his daughter uh, just graduated college, just a whiz kid and got a job at, at one of the big tech companies in Seattle. And sh her start date is January, right? She's got the job lined up, makes a ton of money. And guess what? She's subject to that tax for the rest of her life. She's a future hire and we already know she's going to make a great living and she's going to be taxed. Now in no way, shape or form would we ever consider talking to her about long-term care, given the fact that she's 24, you know, right. but guess what? You know, she's part of this program. Right. I had a really similar conversation with a 28 year old teacher this weekend yeah. who was saying, but how am I supposed to know what I, when I'm going to want to retire here or what I'm going to want to do, right. you know, 30 or 40 years from now. So a lot of considerations for people to make. Um, if you do have employees who are part of a collective bargaining unit, then this is important for you too. And again, like paid family medical leave, if that bargaining agreement was in effect prior to this date of October 19 and 2017, they aren't going to be subject to, the, to those withholdings. But when that agreement is renegotiated or if it's opened for some reason, then that existing agreement would technically expire and you would have to layer in these long-term care um, taxes. Um, a couple of other things that I think are important to know too that the state has called out, if you as the employer collect the tax in error from an employee who has maybe provided their documentation, as the employer, you'll be responsible to refund that employee. The state is not going to give any money back once it's been you know, remitted or reported to them. So, you know, making sure that you're diligent about, you know, your record keeping and updating of your payroll systems, of course, becomes, you know, probably even more important than it is today. And, you know, those employees live, living in the neighboring states, 
Um, here's the link to Washington Cares. Um, and again, we can drop that in the chat as well, if that's helpful. All right, so Steve, you're gonna walk us through these options for employers because I think this becomes the next place yeah. where folks wanna understand. I'm gonna start the next poll here. And uh, so if you wanna go ahead and um, go to the next one, if I can figure out how to do it, you can go ahead and uh, walk us through this. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it, it comes down, here's the second poll question. Yeah, kind of so move it, that off to the side a little bit. Yeah, so, so it comes down to, what do I do, right? We're, we're empowered with this information now. Now we know how this thing works. And the question is, what do I do as an individual? What do I do as an employer? And, and we laid out four options here. Um, and some might be great and some might not be. You know, the key here is that I appreciate the time, the fact that you took time out of your busy day to learn more about this program because the state hasn't educated you yet, number one. You know, so I, I commend you for doing that. Um, number two, your employees don't know about this. It, as, as Danielle mentioned, there hasn't been a lot of media attention around this. That's likely going to happen come January, um, you know, after the taxes begin to come out of paychecks. Um, so what are my options here? Well, there's employer-sponsored long-term care programs. This is private insurance. Um, it's just, it's been amazing. The amount of demand and, and uh, the supply is trying to keep up. Um, we, we have some insurance companies that are really concerned about their capacity. Um, the, the, can they handle the volume of business coming their way for this short blip on the radar screen between now and November? But traditional long-term care insurance offered on a worksite basis is still an option. There are still some carriers out there. Um, you could do it on a voluntary basis, meaning you don't have to contribute to the premium. You could just offer this and sponsor this, um, meaning educate, help educate your employees about the private insurance uh, program that's being offered. And depending on the insurance company, you might get some type of reduced underwriting offer. Um, and it's really gonna vary based on the number of employees that you may have. And frankly, they're going to look at the demographics of the group as well. They're going to look at the census and see, do we have the right gender mix? Do we have the right ages and incomes? Um, and then what we've been seeing in the, uh, in the group insurance and in the private insurance marketplace is some of the carriers have been setting minimum uh, amounts that, that people have to purchase in order to buy. So two things that the state didn't do for us that we wanted them to do is they didn't set a minimum benefit in which people must buy for the private insurance opt-out. So employees can buy very low benefits. Um, and then number two, the state said, we're not going to annually recertify people having coverage. We're gonna look at that certification or that attestation once, and we're not gonna do it on a, on a periodic basis. Now that could change, but, but just that and that alone has just, here's a technical term, freaked out insurance companies. They're all worried about people buying insurance to beat the tax and then in month 13 lapsing the coverage. Yeah. And so what they've done to counteract that is set minimums of benefits in which people have to buy, which right. is frankly, it's not a bad thing. They want people to buy comparable or meaningful long-term care benefit. Um, the other number two, the other thing we see is just retail long-term care insurance. 
you know, whether it's from an insurance agent that you're working with today or that you know, you just go out there and buy individual long-term care insurance. Now, what does that long-term care insurance look like? Um, it could be individual or traditional long-term care, like pure insurance, or it could be life insurance with a qualified long-term care rider, meaning um, a, a well-defined long-term care policy that, that's uh, kind of tied to that, that life insurance contract. And so that's number two, the retail insurance option, full medical underwriting. Um, if you're in your 40s, 50s, early 60s, about 80 to 85% of people are gonna get approved you know, from medical underwriting. If, you get, if you're a little bit older or you have significant medical history, you could get declined from individual coverage or the retail option. Um, number three, whole life products with LTC riders. Uh, we love these. Um, you know, win, lose, or draw, I get something, right? We all love that, right? You're not wasting any premium. So you have whole life products with great guarantees on life insurance products that include long-term care riders. And, and depending on the number of employees, there's underwriting concessions and uh, I, I think these work the same way as a traditional long-term care product in terms of the, uh, you're, you've got the, the group, you're leveraging the group's purchasing power to get a group offer. Um, and again, you're combining the life and long-term care together. And so I, I think those are viable options, but I think it takes a census review. It takes a, um, uh, it takes, you've got to support these things and allow for the marketing um, of these programs, meaning emails and, and different types of communications, webinars, so that the insurance company gets an acceptable spread of risk, um, you know, for the, or participation rate, you know, for this type of group. And then lastly, it's just that site that we talked about, right? Where, where you might just say after all this, hey, I don't know that we have the bandwidth to roll something out, or I don't know that we want to roll something out because we've got an incredibly young workforce and transient workforce. We might just want to educate the people about this program, let them know it's coming before it comes, and, and I've done my part. And, um, and what I've seen over the last couple months is a mix of everything. I can't tell you like what we're seeing the most of. I will tell you that um, we've seen in certain industries, um, hospitality, um, you know, some of the construction industries where you have younger, more transient workforces, they're going with number four. And then we've seen uh, paternalistic or maternalistic employers with, you know, long tenured folks that hire income earners that are saying, no, I think my people need a private program and I want to give them access to one. What, what have you seen, Danielle? You know, I, I think it's a little bit all over the board. I think, you know, everyone wants to understand their options. Um, and, you know, and I, and I do think that most employers that I'm talking with want to be able to have something that they can direct people to. Yeah. Um, because kind of to your earlier point, when you talk about the education piece, one of the predictions that we've made, you know, both as advisors, but also from, you know, what we saw transpire with paid family medical leave is that this will fly under the radar until the state really ramps up their education which in all likelihood would happen probably far too late for people then to go find their own, you know, individual alternative and that there will be a lot of angry people in January when, you know, when they see the payroll deductions. So no matter which camp as an employer that you might fall into, I definitely encourage, you know, educating people tapping into some of the resources that Washington Cares provides, 
we have a great flyer as well um, that can, you know, be used to share with employees that can direct them to an option that they can seek out, you know, an alternative as individuals. And I'll tell you, just like as a, a private insurance, whether it's group or, or retail individual stuff, it doesn't necessarily mean all your employees are going to go out there and buy insurance, right? We're right. seeing participation rates higher than the norm in, in the enrollments that we've seen, but at least you're educating people on what's coming. Yes. And I do think that employees will at least appreciate that part. We are moving into the Q&A portion. I, uh, well, I take that back. I mean, please go ahead and pop your questions into the Q&A or the chat. Um, we can really quickly talk about what, you know, actually qualifies as long-term care. And, you know, I know Steve has, Steve, I think you've probably covered all of the bases, but yeah. there have been some confusing messages out there in the market. Um, these minimum amounts that you're talking about and some of those things, those are carrier specific requirements. That's correct. That's correct. Um, but, you know, like, people may already have some kind of a life insurance policy that has a long-term care writer attached to it, or maybe an individual disability policy that has a long-term care writer yeah. attached to it. Those would qualify as long-term care as long as, you know, in the contract, it's specific to a long-term yeah. care benefit. But, but, but it's important to point out though, uh, right now in the industry, in the insurance industry, about 50%, five zero of permanent life insurance has some type of chronic illness rider on it. So I want to make sure that employees that do have those types of policies, um, the long-term care insurance is a definition and it's in yes. this RCW code. So, so again, we kind of redirect people back to Danielle. We can tell you uh, or tell them if their contract would qualify for the opt-out, but it does have to be long-term care insurance, not a chronic illness rider. Yes, there are many policies that have language around critical illness or chronic illness, and you are correct. It is important that people will understand what they have, and that will mean maybe dusting off an old contract and making a phone call or, you know, reaching out. Maybe, you know, HR can be helpful um, to folks with some of that. Okay, so this is just sort of a summary and, um, you know, about the, the disclaimer on the Washington uh, State yeah. Trust Commission. And Danielle and I were joking last week. Um, normally, like, you, you don't even read the disclaimer. It's like a, a formality, right, on these types of presentations. This one's actually important. This is tax advice, right, where we're, we're reading the code and telling people, here's how this works, but there is a forthcoming tax. So, again, I think that puts employers, too, Danielle, in a weird spot where employees ask them about this thing and are they giving tax advice? Yes. Yes. All right. So we do have a question that I'm seeing come in. If you have a new hire, um, as an example, in February of 22, am I correct that the new hire won't have an opportunity to opt out? That is correct. Unless that, yeah, unless that employee has proactively put a policy in place before November 1st, then their opportunity um, is gone. So it might be, be something to consider if you're hiring some people from out of state who are coming in and you know that ahead of time, um, because that's, that's one of the other areas I think that we'll see 
um, some pain in the future. Okay, do we have any other questions? Um, let's see. I see, a question. I see a question about the, uh, the seven other states that are looking into this. Mm -hmm. We'll send it as a follow-up. On the top of my tongue, it's, it's California, uh, Missouri, North Carolina, New York. Um, Colorado. Colorado, Oregon, I think, and Hawaii, of course, has, has looked at this many times before. So yeah. I, I might've mentioned more than seven, but yeah. Thank you for joining me for this important episode of The Checkup. You can follow my podcast on iTunes, anywhere else you listen to your podcast, or on YouTube where you can watch all of our episodes. If you would like any of the information that we've referenced today in this episode, whether it's the long-term care flyers or the links or other follow-up information, message me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Take good care.